0: Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. As we slug along here through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it would really help us if we knew exactly what had been told him uh, that was going on in Corinth. We don't have access to letters that might have come to him or visitors who had come to him and told him about various problems taking place in the church in Corinth. We have to speculate. As we look at this passage today, it seems to be... The people in Corinth are saying, well, perhaps God raised Jesus from the dead, but not us. They just couldn't grasp what it meant to believe that we will also be raised. Couldn't grasp that. So Paul writes to them and says, if not we, then not he. They're tied together. You can't have part of this without all of it. You either buy in or you buy out. You got to take it all or you take none. Dr. Roy Harrisville in his commentary in this passage says, if there had been movies back at the time of Jesus and Paul, then what Paul is saying is, if this is really the way you want to go, saying that people are not raised, then let's back this film up. To the resurrection and edit it out and see what comes next. If you saw It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas for the 497th time, then you recall that this is a story lived out around Jimmy Stewart's character, a man who lives in a community where he's much respected and admired, a loving husband, a much loved father, a banker whose bank has gone under through no fault of his own. He's rushed out onto an icy bridge with snow falling all around him. He's about to jump off that bridge into the icy river below when suddenly he meets an angel. An angel who's down here on the earth trying to collect a few more good deeds so that he gets wings. And the movie plays out. Will Jimmy Stewart jump or will he not? And finally, he says to this angel, I wish I had never lived. And so the angel says, well, let's edit you out and see what this community would look like. And so as Jimmy Stewart runs back into town, it's not at all like it was because this beautiful woman to whom he was married doesn't know him. These children who are the love of his life. Do not know him. Do not belong to him. Friends, business associates, they have no idea who he is. So Paul is saying, if you cannot grasp what it means for people to be raised, then let's edit out the fact that God raised Jesus and see what you have left. Number one, he said, All of our proclamation is in vain. It's futile. It's worthless. I don't want to hear that. This is the way I make my living. This is the way I support my wife. This is the way I hope someday to be able to retire. You see, I was 18. Senior in high school. When I went forward one Sunday morning during the invitational hymn and said to my pastor, I believe I'm being called to preach. First week in August, the district superintendent drove up at the drilling mud company where I was working that summer, getting ready to go on to SMU and said, we've had a preacher drop out of the ministry. He and his wife are getting a divorce. We have no one else to sin. The bishop said, send you. So this Sunday. You start preaching. There's really nothing to this, he said. You go to college five days a week. All day, Saturday, you visit your parishioners. Saturday night, you write a sermon. The next morning, you get up and drive 17 miles and preach it to 16 people. Then you drive 17 miles back and you preach it to 56 people. Then you got all afternoon to write another sermon, which you will preach to the bigger church congregation that Sunday night. And then you will drive back to college and start all over again. I had a Bible. It was presented to me when I was a third grader. The way Eva Marie Campbell presents our third grader Bibles every year. I had a third grader's Bible. I had no library. I had no books about preaching. I would sit there on Saturday night in that little parsonage and turn the pages of my Bible, wondering what in the world I was going to say the next morning. I remember getting to preach at the First Methodist Church in Longview, Texas. It was the biggest church in our district. Dr. Charles Williams was so kind to let me preach one Sunday night in his great big church. And he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm working hard. I'm taking 20 hours. He said, what? What? I said, I'm taking 20 hours. You're taking 20 hours of college work and pastoring two churches. I said, yes. He said, wait a second. This is not a hundred yard dash. This is a marathon. We need you to do this the next 40 years. I've now been doing it 50 years. I am 50 years under appointment of a bishop. I've been doing this every seven days for 50 years. A few years ago, when I'd been here 20 years, the Pastor Parish Relations Committee said to me, what can we do to mark this 20th anniversary? And I said, well, you could do one thing for Gail and me. You've been offering this for years and we've turned it down each time. And that is to sell the parsonage, put the monies you get into an endowment fund and let the income pay Gail and me a housing allowance. All of our other ministers have housing allowances. They're building up equities in a home. We have no equity in a home. That would really help us. OK, we can make that happen. And that's what happened. Now we had several weeks to get out of the parsonage and into the house we were buying. The house we were buying was going to be smaller than the parsonage. And so every afternoon late when I'd get home, Gail would say, can you live without this? Can you live without this? And she was gathering up things and taking them to Goodwill Industries and Salvation Army. And then one night we were having dinner and she asked, what are you going to do about that closet full of sermons? Wow. I've been writing one every week for 40 years. I had 40 years worth of manila folders with a sermon in each one. I said, can I get back to you on that? She said, sure. Sure. And so after dinner was over, she went on into another room to watch television. And I sat in the den by myself. And I thought about all those sermons. There aren't very many preachers who can write their sermons and sell them. A few, not many. I was not successful at that. I'd promised you, as I'd promised other churches where I'd been before, that I would never repeat a sermon to you. Never. I haven't. And so I sat there a long time And I went to that closet and I started taking box after box out to the curb and I set them down. I brushed my teeth and went to bed. And the next morning when I got up, they were gone. Forty years gone. Because I really had to face the fact, you see, that a sermon either happens or it doesn't. I work hard on it. I pray about it. I deliver it as well as I know how. And by the time I say the benediction, it's over. It happened or it didn't happen. It helped you or it didn't help you. And it's over. I'm still doing it, though. I preached this morning at 830. I taught Sunday school for an hour. I'm preaching now at 11. I'm going to wolf down a bite of lunch. and I'm going to drive 310 miles down into Texas. Nine Methodist churches notified me that they would all go together if I would come down and preach to them. I said, I'll be there. So I've got to drive 310 miles this afternoon. Then I'm going to preach at 7 o'clock. I'm going to preach tomorrow at noon. I'm going to preach tomorrow night at 7. I'm going to preach Tuesday and then I'm going to preach Tuesday night at 7. And then I'm going to drive home. I hope to be home by 2.30 in the morning so I can be at the hospitals early Wednesday to see you if you're sick and there. I keep doing it. But Paul says, if Christ be not raised, your preaching is useless. Number two, if Christ be not raised, then your faith is useless. It's futile. It's vain. Different translations of the same word. It's empty. It's futile. It's vain. It means nothing. Faith, you see, is trusting. Trusting. What had they heard from Paul? To use Jesus' words in John's Gospel and the words with which John introduces Jesus' words in the third chapter. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's only one God and He's done what He did in Jesus just one time But that divine love that was willing to go all the way to death on a cross, God raised from a sealed tomb on Sunday morning. You trusted that was so. If it's not so, your faith is worthless. Myron Ulberg grew up in Brooklyn, New York. He's 75 years old now. After writing all of his adult life, he finally put down his own autobiography called Hands of My Father. He's talking about his father's hands because his father spoke through his hands. He was deaf. Myron's mother was also deaf. The two of them had been deaf since infancy. Later in their lives, they had met each other, fallen in love, married, produced Myron. He could hear perfectly. In his book, he describes how difficult it is to try to learn how to talk when nobody in your house talks. They don't talk because they can't hear. It's quiet. So quiet. But they had learned to sign and they taught young Myron how to sign. The parts of the book that were most meaningful to me were the parts where he Describes his parents plea to him to explain what certain things sounded like. He said, for example, we were modest folk, economically speaking. His father worked very hard at a printing in, among printing presses at a printing business. He said it was a big thing when we got to go out and eat Chinese food. It was a big thing when we went to Coney Island. Sometimes we had enough money to ride two or three rides, but lots of times we just went to the beach And I would see my father standing there watching the waves break against the sand. And he would ask, what does that sound like? What does that sound like? Sometimes, he said, we'd have big thunderstorms in Brooklyn. And my mother and father would go to the window and watch the flashes of lightning. Sometimes the thunder was so loud, it would shake the windows. And they would turn to me and excitedly ask, What did that sound like? What does thunder sound like? And so Myron discovered the importance of words, and he spent his whole life producing words. What would divine love sound like? Like a cross, like a resurrection of the one who was crucified. Number three, if Christ be not raised, then you're still in your sins. You are still in your sins. In a few weeks, Gail and I are hoping to go to Germany again. We plan to fly to to Berlin. She and I were first there in 1988. We were with a small group of people. Germany, still divided at that point, Berlin, still divided at that point. Uh, The Brandenburg Gate that my old professor had explained to me described to me there, but you couldn't go through it. There were East German guards, huge German shepherds and Doberman pinchers patrolling back and forth. We finally were allowed to go through Checkpoint Charlie. We did see the magnificent Pergamum Museum that was at that time in East Berlin. Wow, what a museum it is. You and I have read about the Babylonian captivity of Judah. How the people were carted away to Babylon in the year 587, 586, before the Common Era. Guess what? The Pergamum Museum has walls. Walls. Magnificent blue walls that were a part of that ancient city of Babylon. They have artworks from Babylon at the Pergamum Museum. The last time she and I went, the wall was gone. The dog's gone. You can walk right through the Brandenburg Gate. We went again to the Pergamum Museum. We were able to stay longer, see more, as long as we wanted to stay. We'd seen museums on the west side as well. Right now in Los Angeles, there is a gathering of art from East and West Germany from 1945 to 1989 when the wall came down. They don't tell you which artists are from the East and which from the West. You get to see if you can figure it out. But Gail and I have seen some of those magnificent works. And me mentioned two. Grundig is one of the German artists who painted shortly after the end of World War II some of the atrocities that occurred in the concentration camps. But what's really amazing is that he portrays these emaciated Dead Jews in the pieta position. Pieta, you know, Michelangelo and others have done pietas. Gail and I first saw Michelangelo's pieta in New York City, 1965, when for the first time ever it had been taken outside of Italy. But we've seen it at the Vatican as well since then. It is truly magnificent. This white marble. That Michelangelo carved away so that the very dead body of Jesus is draped across the lap of his mother. Grundig has pictured sisters and brothers, cousins of Jesus, draped across the arms of God. The other is Tubka. Tubka has a very large painting of the Last Judgment. Now, those of you who have been to great museums have seen, particularly during the Renaissance period, the Enlightenment period, lots of artists who had renderings of the Last Judgment, many of them based on Matthew's depiction of the separation of sheep and goats. And so usually half of the big canvas will be all the horrible things that are happening to those who were sent away. And the wonderful things that are happening to all of those who have been invited into the kingdom of God. Tubka painting shortly after the war has this magnificent painting of the last judgment but the judge is one of those hanging judges of the Nazi party how would you like to come to the end time for you and find the one sitting on the bench is a Nazi judge not for you Not for me. The one who sits. Is the one who so loved the world. That he sent his son Jesus. That whosoever believeth in this one. Crucified and raised. Shall not perish. But have everlasting life. Number four. If Christ be not raised. Then our dead have all perished. That's what he wrote. Remember that the passage last Sunday, Paul was telling you how much he believes in the resurrection. That after God raised Jesus from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, Simon Peter. He appeared to the apostles in that upper room behind locked door. He appeared to 500 at one time, Paul says, probably thinking about the gathering at Pentecost. Most of them, he said, still alive, though some have died. And now he says to these folks in Corinth, if you don't believe we get to be raised, then Christ was not raised. And if he was not raised, then all our dead have perished. They've wasted away. They simply are no more. February 3rd, it had been 50 years since an airplane went down in the field up in the north carrying Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. You remember Chantilly Lace and a pretty face? Well, they all died. They all died February 3rd, 1959. I was still in high school. It was a sad day for many of us who enjoyed... Dance to the music of those three. Of the three, Buddy Holly, his memory seems to have survived a little bit better. Movie made of his life with Gary Boosey, you remember? Buddy Holly, his life began in Oklahoma. He grew up in Lubbock, Texas. He had a little band called The Crickets. They supported themselves right out of high school by doing remodeling projects. They learned how to lay tile. They learned how to float and tape uh, sheetrock. But their love was their music, and they worked really hard at it. And by the time Buddy Holly was 21, he was one of the best-known names among teenagers in the United States of America. He moved to New York City, got married. He was only 22 when the plane went down. His wife, widow, now 75. She was interviewed the other day on that 50th anniversary, and she said, "Buddy he was 22, but he was going on 70. He worked so hard. I kept begging him, slow down. Enjoy life. Enjoy. And he said, but I have to work harder because I want my music to last Forever. Well, buddy, not your music, not my sermons, but those who die believing that God Almighty did in fact raise his son Jesus from the dead.